Hi everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. So today we have Philip Smythe back on the show and he is a researcher at the University of Maryland's Laboratory for Computational Cultural Dynamics. He also is a writer of Hezbollah Cavalcade and I know he's got some new stuff coming out on that site so please check that. And he's also the recent author of The Shiite Jihad in Syria and its Regional Effects, which um, has been published by WINEP, the Washington Institute of Near East Policy. We'll definitely post a link to that for our listeners. But first of all, Philip, thank you for coming back on the Loopcast. Well, again, thanks for having me. I'm actually, I'm shocked that you'd have me again since I'm, I'm always... Uh harassing you guys with something. <laughs> <laughs> we, we like harassment here at the Loofpat cast, but only good harassment. So that is not an invitation to trolls. <laughs> yeah, disclaimer. Um, so, you know, this paper that you just recently wrote is so in-depth, has so much information that's fantastic. So anyone that's interested in this topic really needs to read it, number one. I mean, just to start off with, how long did it take you to compile all this research and write this in-depth paper? Uh, quite a while. Uh, when I say quite a while, I mean, I had been uh, part, I mean, there are different parts of it. So I have one section just about their internet recruitment. And uh, that was interesting. Mean, it was a, a huge interest for me going back a number of years, back to 2012, uh, when I first noticed this kind of stuff online. So I just, you know, I kept a record of it and it was kind of a, a more ad hoc uh, type of approach, but I had been working on it for Geez, I don't know, like ten months, almost a year, and I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm a tad odd when it comes to perfectionism. Like, I will miss a grammatical error, but I will, you know, go crazy about a date that's a little off. So I made a lot of the editors crazy, and actually, uh, uh, Mary Horan, who is at Washington Institute, I, I really, I, I owe her so much for actually being patient with me, and then also uh, developing the paper. Uh, and, and remember, there was like a, a couple thousand more words. When I say a couple thousand more words, I mean a hell of a lot more than that uh, in material that I, I really just wanted to put in. But, you know, she kept uh, streamlining it and, and made the paper better and readable. And so I, I owe her quite a bit, but uh, it had taken me a, a number of months. And, I you know, because everything was – I don't want to say it was diffuse. I mean everything kind of feeds into one another – uh, in terms of the main topic, um, but because sometimes the, the the little subjects within them they they would need and I guess demand uh, a good level of attention, so it just you know it kept dragging on, and then there were other things that kind of got in the way. But um, it it did take quite a while, and I'm I'm glad that a paper was eventually released. I, I know I was making people at uh, Washington Institute pretty crazy. <laughs> well, um, you know, thank you for putting in this work because it's. It's just chock full of information. As you said, it. the title says one thing, but there are so many different aspects within the paper um, that you touch upon. So, I mean, to start off with, I'm going to quote you because you have this great quote at the starting of the paper. And you say, the term foreign fighter has become a virtual synonym for Sunni jihadists. But on the other hand, there are thousands of Shiite fighters involved in this battle. So with that great starting quote, tell us about this. Well, if we want to talk about something else that makes me practically mentally ill, um, it's been this narrative, and, and I, I don't think it's it's intentional. I think that, unfortunately, in media and also in analytical circles, uh, people kind of get stuck in one little narrative, and uh, they don't really see how, uh, I guess, excluding other little pieces of information or just focusing on one uh, piece of it 
kind of detracts from a bigger picture. So a lot of people, because, you know, ISIS is the main focus for many, and I'm not saying that's, that's you know, a, a bad thing. I mean, they're an evil genocidal group. Um, people were just kind of focusing on Sunni jihadis. Um, you know, Sunni jihadis were coming back to Europe. They, they might attack in the United States. They were attacking in Australia. Um, and so when people looked at foreign fighter, I mean, it kind of turned into the, you know, the sexy narrative. Oh, well, they're leaving England and they're going off to Raqqa and they're fighting. And meanwhile, they missed an entire, essentially state-run foreign fighter program um, that, you know, was funneling thousands, maybe tens of thousands of fighters into Syria and then totally turned the war in, uh, in Bashar al-Assad, uh, Syria's uh, president, uh, in his favor. How, do, how does one ignore something that's like that? And, and, and I guess going back to it, it did make me a little nuts. It made me a little nuts because they were having such a monumental impact. And yes, I'm not saying they wouldn't get press coverage, but I guess in terms of the big picture, you know, a lot of the big picture uh, events were kind of uh, for foreign fighters were sealed up in uh, what was going on in the Sunni realm. Of course, there have been a few small stories about foreign fighters going to the Kurds and a few foreign fighters going to Christian groups, and and those do make a, a little splash. But I mean, this was a major effort. It was also a, you know an effort funneling people who are self-described as jihadists um, who are fighting this war, uh, and they were. I mean, even sometimes they were self-describing themselves as foreign fighters. So. You know, when you when you think about it, uh, when it's kind of left out of this this grander picture, I uh, it, it made me a little crazy. So, I mean, it was just it was a lot of things all wrapped into one. I think what really set me off was, and again, I, I don't think you know anybody at Washington Post deliberately meant it to come off like this, but there was a graph that came out and it said foreign fighter flow, and it showed foreign fighters, but they were only either going to ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra, as if those were the only two groups. Uh, and of course we know that they are Sunni jihadist groups. And then meanwhile, I didn't see any arrows, you know, coming out of Lebanon saying Lebanese Hezbollah or, you know, an arrow coming out of Iraq saying Asaya Bahlal Hawk or anything like that. Uh, but it was, I guess, inadvertently, uh, labeled as, you know, the foreign fighter flow. Well, when you see something like that, particularly people who aren't focused on this and even some people who are focused on it, uh, they see foreign fighter, and then that just equals, like I said before, synonym for foreign fighters just means Sunni jihadis. And I've had plenty of discussions with people at colleges, and plenty of people with uh, plenty of discussions with people in analytical circles where they will just say foreign fighters as if it just means Sunni jihadis. And I'll say, oh well, I do work on foreign fighters too. And I've, I even had one person tell me, oh well, the militias don't really count. I mean, they're militias, <laughs> okay, <laughs> but they. Follow the definition of a foreign fighter. So, anyway, that was I, I thought that was a major thing that I did need to address. So, looking at these militias, as your friend that you just referred to spoke of, <laughs> who are some of the big groups involved in the Shiite foreign fighter area? Oh well, there's lots of them, uh, and when I say there's lots of them, oof, where do I begin? Um, I guess some of the biggest ones, I mean, we had the Badr organization, which is Iraq-based. I mean, I'll go through the Iraq-based ones first. And mind you, there are a ton of groups and there's a lot of overlap uh, in memberships between these different organizations. Um, so we have the Badr organization. Uh, they were formed in the early 1980s uh, and they were, you know, they've essentially morphed into a, you know, full Khomeinist organization. Uh, and now they're led by Hadi al-Amri. You've probably heard about him a lot now with the Decreed Offensive and, and leading probably the most well-organized and 
uh, well-equipped of uh, Iran's proxy groups in Iraq. So they kind of uh, were created back when Lebanese Hezbollah was first coming into existence. Uh, so along with the other Iraq groups, then we have newer groups. Uh, some people call them special groups uh, back during the Iraq war when the United States was occupying Iraq. Uh, so you had Asayib al al-Haq, which was a splinter from uh, Muqtada al-Sadr's Jaish al-Mahdi, uh, or you know the Mahdi army, uh, and that's led by Qais al-Ghazali. Um, and uh, that group, I mean, that's another radical uh, sectarian Shia group. Uh, we have Qatab Hezbollah, which was formed out of a few different uh, streams, uh, had a lot of influence from the Badr organization. Actually, uh, I, uh, I think he's uh, registered by Department of Treasury and possibly by state. I mean, don't quote me on that one. I don't know. But uh, uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, uh, who you know is a, a designated individual as a terrorist, he helped form uh, Qatab Hezbollah. Uh, so those were three main groups that had sent people over. But then there was an entire other recruitment effort, and also new special groups, if you wish to call them that, were created uh, to funnel fighters into Syria, and now they are essentially taking on lives of their own, fighting within Iraq, and also engaged in the political process and doing a lot of other things. So you have uh, Qatab's uh, Said al-Shuhada. Uh, actually, I wrote the first profile on this group, and, and I, you know, I'm going to let the ego get the best of me because I did enjoy writing about them. Um, so this is a group that, that technically they said that it had splintered from Qatab Hezbollah, yet it follows all the same Khomeini's ideology. Uh, they actually had a member, uh, Abu Mustafa al-Ghazali, who was elected to parliament in Iraq uh, from Basra. Um, then you have another group. Uh, it's led by Akram Kabi, who used to be within Asayib al-Haq. Uh, and they call that group Harakat Hazab al-Nujabba. Sometimes they're called uh, Harakat al-Nujabba. Um, but that's another one of these organizations. Uh, so those are kind of the, the bigger players. And then within that recruitment effort that was going on, uh, the, I mean, there were different kind of front organizations that were started. Um, one of them, and, and uh, it was kind of a popular council or a popular committee uh, to mobilize people for the defense of Saida Zainab. And that actually represented a number of the groups I just named. Uh, and they were recruiting people through there and then sending them off to Syria after giving them training in Iran or in Lebanon. Um, so you have that on the Iraq side. Again, I didn't name all of the organizations, just kind of the bigger ones that you know, got their, their names known because of the conflict. Um, and I'm not even getting into the Syrian-based ones. I'll get to that in a second. Then in Lebanon, you had Lebanese Hezbollah. Lebanese Hezbollah, most people know about that group. Um, they were some of the earliest when it came to publicly announcing that they were in Syria and fighting in Syria, and they were leaking out information even since 2012 that had intimated that you know they had, at least back then, an advisory role of sorts that was on the ground. Uh, so you had them. Then in Syria, you had a whole other effort, and this was – and when I say a whole other effort, this does not mean that the Iranians were not at some point eventually controlling it or didn't have their hands in it to begin with. But there was far more interaction with uh, Syrian intelligence, uh, their Mukhabarat uh, apparatus. Um, so you had that going on. And, and initially the kind of main network – I called it the Lafa network or Liwa Bufadl al-Abbas – um, and these were groups that kind of – it looked as if they had splintered off of Liwa, Bufadl al-Abbas. But 
essentially what it was was the organization had started this is lafa um and then some of the senior commanders that were in it uh they were given their own brigades and then these brigades took on uh little mini lives of their own and they had their own recruitment efforts and their own command structure but you know all these guys were essentially you know part and parcel all you know all cogs within the same wheel within the same machine uh so there were a number of groups that were formed uh out of liwa bufadla bas um and now some of them, I mean, now there are so many Liwa Bufadalalabases that are in Iraq, it's really hard to catalog all of them because, you know, it's become a very, very popular name. Um, so that, I mean, in a nutshell, that's a very, very basic, um, I guess, kind of uh, overview of the organizations that were involved. So looking at this, how do these organizations, and I, I mean, as you mentioned, there are numerous organizations that we're dealing with here, but what is their recruitment effort like? Well, the main recruitment effort, I mean, I did a lot of work on their internet recruitment because I thought that, you know, once again, kind of like talking about how everyone thinks Sunni jihadis are the only foreign fighters. Uh, there was another, um, another kind of viewpoint that would say, oh, well, wait, Shia jihadis are recruiting online too? Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, I, I cover that quite a bit, but I can tell you I did a lot of work on the actual recruitment efforts that they were doing. And, I mean, these recruitment efforts are going on in mosques and Husseinis. Um, they were even going on, you know, going on in the streets. I mean, they were putting up banners in the streets with uh, pictures of different martyrs from Syria uh, with phone numbers to call in. There were central uh, phone networks that you could call into and, and either pray for the fighters or you could uh, go in and give them their in- your information and join uh, there were other on-the-ground efforts that they were engaged in. So, I mean, you name it, clear across the board, uh, there are a lot of different efforts that were going forward. Um, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, when you look at it, uh, it was an extremely organized effort. And when I say that, I mean, I'm not saying that ISIS and you know groups like Shabbat al-Nusra don't have their own uh, methods of doing so. But this, I mean, I, I called into a very, very large amount of, uh, of recruitment phone numbers. I didn't even put all of them in the report. Um, but I, I mean, I kind of did more of a, a structured study on that. And these guys, I mean, if you really want to talk about an organized effort that is serious, that, you know, does background checks on the people that are coming in. I mean, for instance, one of the organizations that was in Iraq, I didn't even name them before, but you know, they're, they're another a smaller group called Failak Wald al-Sadiq. Um, they had actually put up online uh, that, you know, you could send in your credentials. They had an office that was open. You could send in their credentials. And if you didn't hear back from them in three days, then you were not picked to go on jihad in Syria. However, if you did hear from them, well, hey, you get a, you know, a trip to, uh, to Iran or Lebanon where you do some training and then you can go and defend Saida Zainab and, and everything would be hunky-dory. So this is essentially how they were, they were running it. And, and actually it, it proved to be a very, very effective uh, recruitment effort and process. And uh, as we're seeing now, we can see how truly effective it, it really was. I mean, who, who are the, uh, which are the forces that are now really uh, leading the charge in Assad, Syria. It's not really the Republican Guard. It's the Shia Jihadi forces, Hezbollah, IRGC. Um, I also, you know, I also, it's it's interesting, uh, and I don't want to go and become too tangential, um, but I also did a lot of work on the Afghan Shia fighters, and and I'd been studying them ever since I saw kind of the first internet announcements and the first pictures of, of supposed Afghan Hazara. These are Afghan Shia, and they look ethnically distinct because they have... Uh, you know, Central Asian kind of features. Um, 
there was a huge effort to recruit them. And now they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting. You know, a lot of these guys were recruited out of Iran uh, and they were being funneled straight to Syria. I mean, so when you look at it, this is a, a quite a large effort to get a, a multitude of different fighters for different reasons uh, into the country. But, you know, with the Afghans, the way they were running it, since many of them were being pulled out of, uh, out of Iran, uh, these guys, you know, they could even call into central networks, they could go on Facebook, and they could find, uh, how, you know, recruitment information. Uh, it was very, very streamlined and, and not all that hard to find a lot of this stuff. And I mean, they, they have just used this process that they first tried with the Iraqis have replicated it. And, uh, it's still, I mean, it's still going strong today. They're still recruiting people in the same way. Looking at your section on recruitment and you refer to what you call the phone banks and, and you talked about it just now, it seems like as opposed to Sunni recruitment, which we do see a lot online and so forth, it just seems like the Shiite recruitment has much more of I guess you could term it a community element. It seems like they really have, like you said, a strong structure, a whole process, as opposed to maybe a couple of people talking to people online saying, yeah, come to Syria. It's great. <laughs> we'll give you travel <laughs> tips to through Turkey, so forth. Um, so, I mean, looking at this, how like who are the primary recruits? What like what areas do they come from? Uh, OK, well, for Iraq. I mean, the, the Iraqi fighters, Iraqi Shia fighters, they were primarily coming from Baghdad on south. So Basra was a huge recruitment area. I mean, Diyala, certain parts of Diyala anyway, there were many uh, fighters that were coming from that zone. Um, so, you, I mean, you kind of have this, it's been a very, very widespread effort within Iraq. Um, I mean, I, I've seen reports of a lot of different types of people that have gone off to fight. That doesn't mean, I mean, that's kind of the, the central hub I mean, if you're, you're talking about the real foreign fighters that they were getting in, uh, a good majority of them were coming from Iraq. They were Iraqi Shia, um, and they would recruit in these urban areas. I mean, it's interesting. If I was watching the internet recruitment, the internet recruitment, there were upsurges of it during religious holidays. Mm -hmm. And this seems to happen quite a bit whenever, you know, Iranian proxy groups, they release new weaponry or they want to show that they've supplied their, you know, their forces with X, Y, or Z. Um, they'll do it around certain religious holidays or in the run-up for a religious holiday or when it's starting to close. Um, so Arbayin was a really big time when there was recruitment. Um, Ashura was another big time. I mean, because they could play off of sentiments of martyrdom and, you know, pilgrimage sentiments and things like this, uh, in order to get more fighters, uh, into, well, into the fight. Um, but that doesn't mean that these were the only fighters that were being pulled on. And actually there was quite a laudable, effort to get in other people. And I mean, it, it changed over time. Uh, I mentioned before the Afghan Shia, there was a whole internet recruitment, uh, uh, I guess, technique or, or, or process that was going on for them. Uh, it was targeted in languages that they speak, primarily Farsi, which would, which would indicate, you know, they are trying to target the Iranian-based Hazara Shia. Uh, and this, it was like in this whole little hidden uh, social media kind of network. But we'd call in and that's who they would cater to. Um, so you had that going on. Then in Lebanon, there was a whole other effort run by Lebanese Hezbollah. Uh, they, while they did have an internet apparatus, it was not as big as what they would do on the ground. Uh, they had a lot of different, uh, um, posters and whatnot. They would put up with two, you know, two phone numbers and you could call into either number and you could reach people on the other end who would tell you what, you know, how, how they would uh, run uh, a certain recruitment, uh, uh, process. 
So you'd have that too. But then here's something else, and this is a, a more complicated issue. Um, I did record, uh, you know, a number of fighters that were coming in uh, from Africa, at least reportedly they were coming in from Africa, uh, one of which was from Cote d'Ivoire, um, and this was uh, Mr. Cooney. Uh, he was killed, I th- want to say like uh, summer of 2013, um, and when he was killed, they called him the first African martyr, uh, and he was lauded quite a bit in Iranian official press and in uh, social media and a lot of different places, you know, to demonstrate that uh, they had this uh, influence in West Africa. Now, beyond that, uh, and here's the really interesting thing, uh, beyond that, there are also reports of Somali fighters, and I kept seeing these guys' faces. They would always pop up in... Uh, videos that were released by Liwa Bufadlalabes, uh, and they were, you know, fully kitted out. Uh, you know, they had official Liwa Bufadlalabes patches, all sorts of stuff. And uh, on the social media networks, pr- uh, primarily the ones that would link back to certain IRGC networks online, um, they would always say that they were Somalis. So when you think about that, okay, well, there aren't <laughs> aren't that many Somali Shia. Though, uh, and I did I, I did have the ability to uh, talk to you know plenty of people in. Uh, in kind of the Washington DC metro area. Cause I would just ask around. I was surprised. I'm like, what's, what's the deal with the, these Somali guys, uh, that apparently there were connections, you know, going back to certain Somali groups, uh, whether they were Sunni jihadi or just like other organizations on the ground. Uh, and it's possible that, you know, maybe some of these guys are being pulled into the effort. Um, so, I mean, that, that was another element of it. Um, Afghans I covered, then there was another element on top of this. Um, there were many reports that there were, you know, Yemeni Houthis, uh, meaning they were from Ansar Allah. I didn't see any death announcements. I went through a ton of Houthi stuff just to see if uh, there was any real credibility to it. I kept seeing the claims, and I mean, it's entirely possible. I saw another report recently that was saying that uh, some Yemeni uh, uh, Houthi fighters had uh, were in like southern Syria, and they were uh, gaining some experience, and that it was possible that some Houthis were captured up near Aleppo. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't truly shock me. I just haven't seen anything truly definitive about it. But another interesting thing that happened when Iraq started to explode, it was really interesting to see kind of a shift in how the foreign fighter networks were working and where they were shifting these forces. So for starters, uh, and I noticed this from calling into the recruitment networks, and this happened to me, I don't know, five or six times when I would call in. And it even, I mean, I even had a friend who was on one of the calls with me uh, and he called in, and it happened to him as well. Uh, and so I, I, the way I speak Arabic, it sounds like this idiot speaking Lebanese, like an American idiot speaking Lebanese Arabic. Um, so it's pretty easy to kind of tell, you know, <laughs> what accent I have. It's, you know, it's not that hard. I've been there too. Um, I was accused of being like a retarded Lebanese girl when I was in Lebanon trying my Arabic out. So yes. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, not really a good uh, <laughs> legacy. Well, but anyways, go ahead. <laughs> So anyway, I would call in and and actually on the other end, they would say, oh, well, we don't need any Lebanese brothers because right now we've switched the recruitment over to our Iraqi brothers because, you know, we're going to have another defensive jihad in Iraq. And I would go, oh, you don't say. Now, mind you, this was months, months before uh, the main shift occurred when, you know, the main kind of quote unquote ISIS crisis in June 2014 um, so this was months before, and a lot of these, the really experienced Shia fighters who were on the ground in Syria, the ones which came from Iraq and were in command positions, uh, they had been sent back when the Maliki offensive really, you know, kicked up in earnest 
uh, and this was in early 2014, late 2013, um, they were, you know, they were sent back to Iraq and they were clearly fighting there. Uh, but when you remove that many fighters from an arena, well, what does that do? I mean, it hurts an effort. So in order to compensate for that, the recruitment for the Afghans was upped quite a bit. When I say quite a bit, I mean, that's an understatement. Um, but then also they started to approach other uh, places that they could recruit from, namely Pakistan. And uh, Harakat Hazbalal al-Nujabba, a group that I, I followed quite closely, this is another one that I actually also wrote another one of the first profiles on. Um, this group actually was recruiting in Urdu, uh, trying to pull on via the internet uh, different Pakistanis to, you know, come into their, their realm. Um, and so, I mean, you could just kind of see the spread. And, and it actually led me to, it was just interesting looking at it. It led me to kind of say that there's a certain recruitment pivot that's going on. One, initially they were playing up certain Africans that were fighting with them. Uh, and then after this, they've been really playing up uh, people who are coming from the the Indian subcontinent. Uh, and it appears that this effort is continuing. And I mean, they're still building an internet apparatus, I guess, social media apparatus for some of these groups. And many of the, uh, the players are getting a higher profile in the media. So when I, when I see something like that, it, it demonstrates that there is a far broader push going on. I mean, if we're looking at the, the jihad in Syria, just as one small element, I think that this is kind of the key push. Uh, and I think if we're, we're looking back at this historically, that has allowed for, you know, Iran to develop extremely effective foreign fighter networks. And I'm not saying they didn't already have, you know, people who were enamored with Ayatollah Khomeini uh, or people who, you know, were really interested in the Islamic revolution that they couldn't call on. I mean, they, this has been, you know, in the works for a few decades, but now we're seeing it kind of full force for the first time. And now we're also seeing it, what, on social media, on television stations, on everything. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a real development, and I think that it will be affecting the region for quite some time. So I know listeners are going to want to know, because, of course, in our media here, we've heard reports of Westerners, whether it's in Europe or here in the U.S., traveling to Syria to join the Sunni jihad, so we'll call it that. Have we seen that with the Shiite jihad? Yes. 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 Uh, and I would say primarily with Iraq. Um, and it, here's the other thing. I have noticed that they have attempted to mute the involvement or at least hush, you know, hush up the involvement of certain Westerners that have fought over there. Now, there are some main, like, big time examples, uh, from Lebanese Hezbollah. You know, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, fighters was actually on the FBI's most wanted list and he was killed fighting in Syria. Uh, and he was active in Canada and the United States, uh, procuring different, uh, uh, different electronic sets for Hezbollah, you know, you got in a lot of trouble. Uh, then there was the example of those two Armenian thugs that, I, I don't know if they were kicked out of the United States, you know, meaning they were deported or what, but uh, they also went over to fight uh, in Syria, and they were pictured with uh, Lebanese Hezbollah advisors. So that, I mean, that, that should definitely point to something. Now, recently, and I, when I say recently, I mean it was, I think, a few weeks ago, uh, there was a Norwegian fighter, I want to say he was like 15 years old, who was killed in Iraq, um, fighting with, you know, Shia militias. So it does occur. It does happen. But what I would say is, it, I mean, it, when I called in and I would say that I was a Westerner, and sometimes they even call in in English, you know, and, and, and push this, it, it's not like I was ever deterred. But when you're dealing with a highly organized uh, jihadist process. Now, if you look at ISIS, ISIS is essentially reliant on its foreign fighters, and they are attempting to build a state, 
and it's based a lot out of you know these different fighters coming to the country or coming to the the quote unquote country they're trying to establish. Um, but with the Shia jihadis, I mean, there there are ample amounts of people to recruit from um, within this this whole arena. I mean, there are tons of Shia in Lebanon, tons of Shia in Iraq. I mean, there's no shortage of bodies. So when you think about it, why would they need to call up Pakistanis? Why would they need to call in Afghans? Why would they need to, you know, bring in people from Africa? Um, I'm pretty sure there's another, you know, more propagandistic uh, reason for why they're doing so. But in terms of Western fighters, I haven't seen too much discouragement of it. It's just, you know, they, I, I think the, you know, the Iranian-led effort, I think they're smart enough to know, or at least smart enough to realize that there's a potential for being infiltrated, or there's the potential that, you know, other other matters could kind of influence their recruitment efforts if they're, you know, pulling in Westerners. Um, they're smart enough to do that. Remember, this is a centralized process from, you know, a, a group of people who have been running the, these sorts of affairs for many, many years. Uh, so they're very, very careful about it. It's not like, I mean, just because you're an Iraqi Shia and you're living in Basra, it doesn't mean that you're going to get into said Shia militia if you want to. I mean, they're highly selective. I mean, even with the recruitment efforts going on now in Iraq and everybody's trying to join up, um, I mean, they still are, are quite careful in terms of, of whom they pull on. Um, but yes, I mean, there have been a, a number of different Westerners. Um, I keep trying to compile really good figures on it. And at times, I mean, I'll, I'll find stories that contradict one another and I'll see things, certain things online. Uh, if you look at the social media networks, they would not push Western fighters as much as they would push, let's say, Afghan fighters or Pakistani fighters or Iranians or, you know, Iraqis or Lebanese. Uh, it was not as heavy. However, and I don't want people to think that this means that they're trying to discourage it. Um, what I do think it is, I mean, they are now still looking towards the diaspora. And when I say they're looking towards the diaspora, if you're pushing uh, an angle that says we have pulled in a guy from Africa or we've pulled in a guy from uh, the Ivory Coast, we've pulled in uh, a guy from Afghanistan, we've pulled in these people from Iraq, this person from your ancestral village in Lebanon, um, and you're living in, let's say, Dearborn, Michigan. I would assume that that would have some level of, uh, you know, so, some level of influence on your actions and on how you view the situation. And because this was essentially marketed as a romantic defensive jihad, um, I mean, the influence at, at, at hand, I mean, it, it would definitely, you know, affect certain diaspora communities. So looking at the current situation right now in Iraq and Syria, I was wondering how is the creation of these Shiite militias different or similar from the creation of Hezbollah in the 80s and 90s? And what is Iran's involvement in these two separate creations of militia? Well, here's an interesting thing. Uh, Matt Levity says this quite a bit, that, you know, in the in the kind of uh, uh, world of these Shia militias that are Iran's proxies, uh, Hezbollah is first among equals. Um, and I think it takes time to develop these groups out. And if you notice... If we're looking at Iraq and if we're looking at Lebanon, what are the two oldest groups? You have Hezbollah for Lebanon and you have the Badr organization for Iraq. Uh, and these groups were around since the early 1980s, at least in proto stages and uh, eventually developed into their own things. And, and what happened in Iraq, um, and I think this has been going on, you know, we noticed it first. Actually, Brian Fishman wrote a really, he wrote a really great study about this, about Badr organizations, influence and uh, connections to how these different uh, Shia militia groups like Qatab Hezbollah and uh, Asaibah al-Haq, uh, how they were being kind of groomed. 
Um, certain sections were pulled out of Badr, given a new name, put in, like, let's say, Kitab Hezbollah, uh, and they would have the same kind of networks that were there. They just had a new name. Uh, so in many cases, you know, you could see that happening. I mean, I, I gave the example of Harakat Hazab al-Nujabba, which came out of Asai Bahul al-Haq. Um, and its leader is Akram Kabi, who was one of the founders of Asai Bahul al-Haq. With Kitab Said al-Shuhada, there was clear connections to the Badr organization. Uh, and what they would do, uh, I mean, they had two of their fighters, uh, which they listed as martyrs for the group, were both connected in with, with Badr people with Badr organization themselves, or with uh, lead figures who were killed, lead martyrs uh, who were killed within uh, Badr organization. So when you look at it, you see they had this kind of um, a, a very supportive core that they could rely on, that they could draw off of and then create another group. And I, I said, you know, I said this in the report, we can't look at these, these organizations as if they are atomized entities. Of course, I'm not saying that, you know, they all completely follow the beat of the same drum. I'm not saying that they don't have their own, at times, uh, disagreements. But if we look at ideology, they follow a, a similar ideology. In terms of command structure, uh, many of these, these new organizations have commanders that have uh, you know, a, a strong Badr organization uh, history or they have a history with you know, another uh, uh, Shia Jihadi group that the, uh, that the Iranians have cultivated and or created. Um, so, I mean, when you look at that, that's kind of how they have done this process. But to kind of go back to your original question, um, with Hezbollah, I, I think the the process in which uh, in, in, in which it was created um, it does mirror in some cases how some of these other groups uh, have also grown and been created. So, Lebanese Hezbollah initially came out of a number of different radical wings. You had Islamic Amal, which was part of uh, Harakat Amal, or the Amal movement, uh, which was at the time in the 80s the main uh, uh, Shia group that was in Lebanon. Uh, and so Hezbollah came out of that with a number of different little uh, organizations and, and, and different uh, student groups, different militia-style groups. Uh, and eventually they were coalesced together by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, you know, Iran's, uh, Iran's uh, I guess, projection element to further the revolution, the Islamic revolution, the Khomeinist revolution that we, we all know so well. Um, and eventually they coalesced and became Hezbollah. Now, now that Hezbollah was created, look at how Hezbollah has been used. Hezbollah's members have been attached to different groups in Syria that they wanted to create as uh, quote-unquote Syrian Hezbollah. There are a lot of these different new Shia, there are 12 or Shia militia groups that are in Syria, and they were attached, had, had Hezbollah commanders, uh, they had Hezbollah uh, core forces that would give them assistance, and now they've become their own organizations. Liwa Abu Fadl al if you look at that, uh, they had a lot of different connections back to uh, Sadrist splinter groups, which were cultivated by the Iranians. Uh, they may have said that they were allied to uh, Muqtada al-Sadr or loyal to Muqtada al-Sadr, but uh, I think the evidence demonstrates that that might have been a crafty little lie on their part. Um, Anyway, those groups, the way they have been grown and, and the way that they were created also kind of replicated uh, how Hezbollah was grown. You know, the Iranians look for splinters and splits within an organization where certain members are a tad more radical, that they can be cultivated and then formed into a more organized uh, type of group. I mean, this is the same thing with Asaya Bahlal Haq. When they were when they were essentially pulled out of uh, Jaysh al-Mahdi, uh, Muqtada al-Sadr actually came out and said, "Look, we can have a reconciliation. You can come back within our ranks, and we will, you know, we'll make something work out." Um, 
you know, I guess unfortunately for Sadr, uh, they didn't come around to that, and they retained their own, I guess, violent affairs against the United States and also, you know, against uh, other elements, including Sadr's own forces, uh, and remained loyal to the Iranians and even adopted the absolute Wilayat al-Faqih ideology, which is often spread around these so-called Islamic resistance organizations. So that's another example of this. Um, but now I think it's it's moved in another direction where now that there is some level of stability uh, within these new groups that have been created, well, how do you continue to get new recruits? I mean, if people already understand that, let's say, Asaya Bahlal Hawk is already, you know, an Iranian proxy group and they're doing this, that and the other thing. I mean, it does cut down on people you could potentially recruit from. So in the current situation in Iraq, um, I mean, not only have other Sadrist splinter groups been encouraged to grow, I mean, Kataba al-Imam Ali uh, is one example. And I mean, there are a few other examples of, of you know, them trying to grow other groups like Qaeda Kuwait, uh, Abu Fadl al-Abbas. I mean, this took uh, Syrian fighters who were experienced fighting in Damascus and Aleppo uh, and then reformed them into a new group under Aus al I can't even say his name. I'm like, I'm stuttering right now. Aus al-Khafaji. <laughs> so anyway, they're, they're, they're all put under this sheikh. And then also with Sheikh Lami, Sheikh Lami is with Asaya Bahlal Haq, um, and they were formed into this new group um, that is now recruiting people going off to Syria occasionally, you know, uh, uh, still fighting within Iraq. Um, so they just keep doing this. And, and I was saying before, you can't look at them as atomized entities. It's like cellular replication. That's essentially what the Iranians try to do. So they try to replicate a model that has worked. They will try to do this so that it has kind of a multifold approach. If you're taking a splinter from the Sadrists, then that means you can put more pressure on who? Muqtada al-Sadr if you need it. You can pull fighters out of his ranks and possibly cultivate them for your own interests. Um, so these things, these things happen on that angle. Then there's another angle. Now that you've built another force, because you have this multitude of different forces, let's say one of the forces doesn't want to listen to you as much anymore. Okay, we can put more aid behind, you know, force X as opposed to force Y. So there's a benefit there. Um, there are other benefits by making it look so diverse and so huge. I mean, how does Western intelligence or Western policymakers, how would they focus on this? How would regional policymakers and regional intelligence look at this? I mean, the end result is a lot of people will say the Iranians have their hands in just about everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a, you know, they have their hands in every group. That was a question I had. Do we see ever any infighting between some of these groups? I mean, is it all roses and sweet smelling flowers? Or, I mean, do we have any disagreements between them that get out of hand, should I say? Um, I, you know, I, I've heard stories of it. I think for the most part, uh, they have been generally unified. And when I say generally unified, this doesn't mean there aren't disagreements. It doesn't mean that on the battlefield, you know, ground commanders, field commanders don't have problems with other ones. Actually, there was a story, uh, that came out, I think it was from CNN. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, the author. Uh, it might've been Wiedemann. Don't quote me on that again. I, I don't know if it was him, but he was into Crete. One of the uh, reporters was into Crete and they told him to, uh, get rid of the camera footage. But what happened was it was a uh, Katab uh, I think it was Katab Jundalimam and the Badr organization. Mind you, these two groups, you could pretty generally describe as Iranian proxy groups, but they both had disagreements with one another. The Badr guys are listening to the Badr guys and the Jundalimam guys are listening to the Jundalimam guys. Um, 
So, you know, the, these things do happen just because the Iranians have, you know, their finger on the buttons or their fingers on the buttons. It doesn't necessarily mean they have full and complete control. And, and when I say that, um, I, I think that opens up a few other doors. What does this mean if some fighters within X group want to go off and do something that doesn't really follow the program? You know, what if they want to, say, massacre a bunch of people or they want to imprison a bunch of people and it doesn't follow the original plan? Maybe they didn't want those people killed. Um, so I, I think in Iraq right now, I mean, we're probably going to see a lot more of that now that there are thousands of people who are being recruited into different Shia militias. You know, many with revenge on their mind, others uh, who may not be as revenge minded, but want to fight for other reasons. I mean, it, it creates a lot of different uh, situations or possible situations. But in general, in Syria, uh, it was very rare. And, you know, I, I did talk to uh, some fighters who were on the ground there. And I did talk to a lot of their, their online people, even the recruitment networks. I mean, I was, I was busy, busy harassing a lot of people on that end. Um, and coming out of that, I mean, they wouldn't readily admit, you know, that there were problems within their ranks, though, uh, I think we need to look a little bit beyond just kind of the, the, you know, beyond the Khomeinist groups. You have to remember these organizations were allied with, uh, you know, Bashar al-Assad's forces. And there were reports, a number of different reports of firefights that would break out between these, these two different forces. Um, there's a, a sort of kind of a conspiracy theory that's out there. And I, I call it a conspiracy theory because I haven't seen any real evidence to, uh, you know, link to it. But um, that was saying that these three uh, Hezbollah, you know, cameramen who were working with al-Manar, uh, that they were actually killed by the Syrian army, uh, and this was out. Uh, this is out when there was a large offensive going on. The Syrian army wanted full credit for it, not Hezbollah. Uh, there are other reports. I mean, even Reuters covered this between uh, certain uh, Iraqi Shia fighters uh, and Syrian militia fighters, who they didn't consider. I mean, the the former did not consider the latter uh, very professional. And eventually it, it broke down into a firefight. Yeah. So, you know, these things happen on a battlefield. N you know, no group is perfect in terms of retaining full order and full control. And the more groups one creates, well, you know, it, it kind of opens the door to more problems and more potential for other problems. Um, but again, I mean, I don't want to overstate this. I mean, you have to remember how uh, Iran has organized this. They want these these groups to be under this broad header where they call it the axis of resistance. So you have these multitude of different groups uh, all under that header. They all generally describe themselves as al-Muqawwam al-Islamiyyah or the Islamic resistance. And uh, this is kind of the path forward. I think the, the way IRGC uh, QF looks at this is, you know, if you want to make an omelet, you, you know, have to break a few eggs and they're willing to, you know, break the eggs and do the best they can in order to uh, maintain control. So I think this would be a perfect time to transition to the narrative of the Shiite Jihad. As you mentioned, um, Iran now and, and how they want to keep it in their control. One thing that we hear about with a lot of militant groups, we can put it that way, um, is this idea of a transnational jihad versus a jihad that's a local jihad. So like Al-Qaeda was much more of a transnational jihad taking it on the world scene. Is the Shiite Jihad more of a local jihad for these specific areas that are important to Shiites? Uh, yes and no. Um, I say yes and no for a few reasons. One, I think we need to get into how the majority of Shia consider Jihad. And Jihad for them is viewed as a defensive conflict. 
This is a defensive struggle. And I think if we're looking at, uh, you know, leaders like Ayatollah Sistani, um, he provides a perfect example of kind of the steadfastness. You know, you don't always need to declare jihad. You, in fact, the, the recent go around, if you remember his recent fatwa, technically speaking, he didn't call for jihad. That's not mentioned in there in Iraq. Uh, what he did say instead was that able-bodied uh, uh, fighters should join, you know, the Iraqi security forces. In fact, he didn't say join, you know, uh, the militias. Um, he said join the official Iraqi security forces. Um, so it's a, it's it tends to be more of a rarity to hear this. But then we have to remember who was driving the jihad in Syria. It was the Iranians, and when I say the Iranians, I mean a specific, um, you know, clerical body. That's they are firm believers in absolute ulayat al faqih meaning uh, you know loyalty to uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader. Uh, people within IRGCQF means Quds Force. That's Qasem Soleimani, uh, and what they needed to do because they were following that you know that sort of, of base or that that kind of basis of thought um, was that they needed a defensive jihad. Um, there have been a number of reports that came out that said that, you know, when Bashar al-Assad was really under pressure, what ended up happening was an agreement between the Iranians and the Syrians was immediately executed. It was this mutual support uh, sort of treaty that they had. Well, how would the Iranians go about that? Remember, they're a theocracy. They're a radical theocracy. Uh, they believe that they are essentially, you know, the, the leading element for Shia. At least that's how they've posited themselves. Doesn't necessarily mean they are. Um, so they need to create a jihad and their forces, the forces that are under their control are for lack of better terms. I mean, actually it, these are the terms that work. Uh, they're jihadist forces, Hezbollah, the party of God. Uh, this is a jihadist group an admitted jihadist group. Um, Asai al Haq. That's another example. This is the Badr organization. Yet another example of it. Um, Kitab Hezbollah. I mean, this is a group, uh, Kitab Hezbollah is a group that doesn't even have, uh, they don't run in, uh, in Iraq's politics. They're just an armed group, an armed group that calls themselves the Islamic resistance. So when you look at that, how do you get people to fight? Well, first of all, um, to get kind of their core forces, I'm talking about the true believers. And I think when we look at a lot of these organizations, and you know what, I will take some level of blame for this. I mean, it's very, very hard to explain um, how a lot of fighters come to join certain groups. There are a core. I mean, this is very top-down there are true believers within Hezbollah. There are true believers within Asaib. There are true believers within Qatab Hezbollah. And they will follow Khamenei's writ to the T. And if there is something called a taklif or a taklif sharai, which is issued, uh, then they have to follow it. It's tantamount. If you don't follow the taklif when it's issued by uh, Khamenei or, or by one of the clerics that's under him, uh, then you are disobeying God. And they firmly believe in that. Um, and so these are kind of the guys who are leading that push. But many of the other fighters, the rank and file, many of the new recruits, these people wouldn't be self-described as Khomeinists. They could care less. No, they believed that they were defending the shrines. And this is actually when you were talking about local and transnational. One, many of these Shia fighters that were pulled in were, you know, they were transnational jihadists. There's no, there's no denying that. They came to fight a defensive jihad. And the way it was framed was, you are defending the shrines. And here's something really interesting. Qatab Sayyid al-Shuhada, when it was formed, they said that their main goal, this was in their first statement, their main goal, their, their main raison d'etre, was to defend all shrines that are under threat. Well, what exactly does that mean? 
there are lots of Shia shrines that are under threat all over the world. Are we talking about, you know, is she, technically Shiism, I think, was banned in Malaysia. So are they going to defend, uh, you know, what they believe are, are you know, actually, are they going to defend Shia mosques that are in Malaysia? You know, because the Malaysian authorities have this thing against uh, Shia. Um, they never really made that clear. I mean, in their symbol, they have Saita Zainab. I mean, so when you, you look at it, you kind of say, ah, this looks a little bit more Assyria focused. Um, so there's that kind of element. They've left it as kind of this open door in many ways. Okay, no, we're just fighting in Syria. We're just fighting in Iraq. We're just fighting in Lebanon. Um, well, that's more regionally focused. But when we look at it, you know, the groups that are led by the Iranians, they're very, very long term in terms of thinking. Uh, when we look at Sunni jihadi groups, I'm not saying groups like Al Qaeda um, are not long term. Um, but what I am saying is, you know, when you have the centralized leadership and they do have a grand strategy uh, and they do have a grand narrative, they do have grand ideology, uh, their transnational jihad would you know, take place over many, many years and probably be far more effective and successful than, you know, kind of the, the ISIS offensive of hacking people up on the streets and or, you know, shooting up a cartoon, you know, shooting up an office with cartoonists. Um, it, it's a different outlook in terms of how that's delivered. Um, so I would say in some respects, yes, it's regional. But in other respects, it's still global because we're also talking about power projection. Iran has successfully been able to now wrap this up and say, we are the power projection element that will protect, quote unquote, the Shia. And that's it. And they will continue to push their own ideologies and their own, you know, the whole mess of other things uh, underneath that rubric. But at the end of the day, you know, this is essentially what they've been doing. I mean, it's, it's a multifaceted process and it becomes very, very complicated with how they were trying to do it. But when we look at kind of the, the regional jihad, the defense of the shrines, I mean, these tap into very, very, you know, emotional, uh, angles. And in many cases, I mean, the, this time around, uh, especially with ISIS's advance in, in Iraq, there's really no denying it. You know, these shrines are under threat. Um, you know, Iraqi Shia as a whole, they too are under threat. I mean, there is a genocidal program being launched against them. So I, I guess, you know, I, taking a step back, uh, there's a lot of credibility in the narrative. But initially starting out, uh, you know, a lot of this was, you know, they were just trying to craft a narrative just to get people to go over to Syria. And what did they do? They said, well, Saida Zainab, which... I mean, the shrine in Syria was never really a huge major site. In fact, the Iranians were pushing pilgrimages to it because they had, you know, bought up a lot of uh, property around the site and uh, they had redone the uh, shrine and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, they had to really push it hard and say, look, these guys are defending, uh, excuse me, these, these uh, Sunni jihadis, these takfirin, as they were calling them, um, they're blowing up other sites that are holy to the Shia. And don't you understand the threat is coming? So, I mean, they really played up the narrative. And, and the narrative actually, I mean, for lack of better terms, has turned into, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways. Because they kept honing in on this message that, hey, all the rebels are, are you know, takfiris. They all want to kill Shia. Uh, we have to be in a defensive uh, mode. And even if you're not fighting in Damascus to directly, quote unquote, defend the shrine, if you're fighting in Aleppo, it's doing the same thing. So, I mean, this is really how a lot of this was cast and how a lot of it was pushed. Sorry, it was it, it's complicated, so I'm trying to go off in a million different directions. I find it interesting, like, staying on the idea of the narrative here, how 
Iran has also brought the U.S. into their narrative. Of course, we're, you know, the enemy, so to speak, uh, bad relations between the two countries, which who knows, maybe they'll get better. We'll see. Um, but this idea Hopefully. of the U.S. backing Syrian rebels. So we all know we've been backing rebels and, of course, they've been Sunni rebels. Um, and so Iran likes to bring the U.S. in and say, hey, as you just alluded to just now, that all Sunni rebels are Takfiris, that U.S. inadvertently is also supporting Takfiri ideology. And I thought that was really a brilliant narrative to feed into the grand narrative of Iran. Well, it, it, it's a brilliant narrative for a few different reasons. One, we have to tap back to the original Khomeinist ideology. And I, th I think a lot of people are not looking at it. It's kind of interesting. There's this huge discussion going on. What does an ISIS member really believe? Is it religious? Is it not religious? Is it this? Is it that? But meanwhile, on the Iranian end of it, when, it's, it's, it's as if like no one's talking ideology. Um, and this kind of ideological base uh, really did influence the speech pattern and, and I guess the narrative as a whole for describing their enemies and also for kind of describing the big picture. And the big picture for them was these takfiris, whether they were Jabhat al-Nusra or ISIS, mind you, they had to wrap all Syrian rebels, all these Sunni rebels, didn't matter how quote-unquote moderate they were or not, um, they were all considered takfirin. Uh, and this was in Arabic uh, press that they would do. This was in English language press. You name it. They just It was the same line over and over and over again repeated. Um, but they would say that the United States, the state of Israel, and the Europeans were all behind this effort. And taking a step back, you're probably thinking, that's odd. <laughs> how does that even work for your average Shia who's on the ground in Iraq? You know, how does that play into this? Maybe it's just because it's a conspiracy theory. You know, maybe they're just trying to uh, – trying, trying that angle. Well, no. When I say this traces back to the ideology, it traces directly back to Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, and what he said was, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh, was that the, the Americans, the Israelis, or the quote-unquote Zionists, uh, and the Europeans, they were all trying to split the Islamic Ummah. This was their goal. And to do so, either they needed to create false nationalisms, uh, or they needed to create uh, uh, sectarian problems, or they needed to create this, or they needed to push that. Uh, all of it in an effort to split the Ummah, and if only the Ummah would unite, if the Ummah united, meaning the, the Islamic uh, nations, if they if united as a whole, of course they would be under the leadership of, guess who? Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, so it fits into that kind of grand narrative. But on top of that, because the Iranians, you know, they do believe, well, when I say the Iranians, they believe X, um, I do mean, you know, Khamenei and, and IRGCQF, you know, true believers in the ideology. Um, you know, they believe the United States is their main foe. I mean, they, they do call us Shaitan al-Akbar. Uh, Hezbollah calls us Shaitan al-Akbar, the great Satan. Um, so it also fits into that political element as well. So when you think about it, it's kind of like this one-two punch where they can say that the rebel enemies that they're fighting, they're opposing their political ally, Bashar al-Assad, uh, that they are these radical crazy guys who need to be defeated or else they're going to kill all Shia. But then on top of that, oh, well, see how the West is also pushing this and see how the West is actually doing this and we're saving the Islamic world from these crazies. Isn't that great? You see, we truly are the people who are going to save the Islamic world. Didn't you, if only everyone, everybody saw this beforehand. You know, this has been the the kind of narrative that's been that's been uh, 
presented over time. But I mean, it does have those ideological roots. So it does fit in with, you know, an ideological argument that they're making. Um, and I, I mean, I think it, it's provided, you know, provided a very, very beneficial outcome for them in terms of messaging. And actually, if we look at this now, said narrative was not thrown away. It was actually just redeveloped once again. Um, and I actually put into the paper, you know, talking about how Khamenei, back when the Askari shrine was bombed the first time in, uh, I think, 2006, who do you think he blamed for that? He didn't really blame Al-Qaeda. He said that the United States wanted this. And that elements like Al-Qaeda were just around to further the United States goal. So I mean, when you think about it, it's kind of ludicrous and it didn't get all that much attention then. But now, you know, as it's been honed a tad more and pushed harder, it's still starting to work. Uh, and when we look at Iraq, I mean, you can see this from a lot of the, the pro-extremist uh, uh, Shia militia trolls that are online. Almost every one of them, almost within unison. We're going up and, and, and casting these asinine conspiracy theories. Either they were uh, amounting to, oh, America's dropping supplies to ISIS. And then when you'd ask them about that, they'd say, oh, I'm just reporting what I heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were the main sources for such claims? Kitab Hezbollah. So, you know, you do the math on that one. Uh, or I remember one, one of these guys actually came out and said he, – he showed how um, – I think it was something like 50 Iraqi soldiers were unfortunately killed – uh, during an accidental bombing, I think it was like a friendly fire incident. You know, it's very, very sad when that happens when you're, you know, trying to fight ISIS. But of course, he twisted it and said, "Is this retaliation for the success in Tikrit?" Uh, whoa! I mean, take a step back. Whoa! Um, so you see how this narrative is promoted, and it's promoted to say, you know, only Iran can be trusted with securing the Ummah. Uh, and beyond that, America is always – America is so sneaky and so evil, and they're willing to, to work with anyone just to kill us and to make sure that you know, we are isolated and that we don't get anywhere. But not to worry. We're going to keep pushing those evil American plans back. So again, I mean, there's an ideological basis for it. It's continued. I mean, it's continuing right now, right up until today. Uh, and it's not going to stop. I mean, this is, this is a grand narrative, a grand Khomeinist narrative. And it's, it's certainly pushed by a number of elements within uh, Iran's uh, current uh, government. So last but not least, then, and you mentioned Tikrit just now. So we've been hearing about the Shiite militia involvement in taking back Tikrit from ISIS. And I know a lot of people in the media, social media, they're all talking about it. So since we have you here that is an expert on Shiite militia, why don't you tell us what is going on and what looks to be taking place and potentially happening with this? Ew, you just use the E word, <laughs> expert. Nah. Look, look, I, again, I'll give you the blazing saddles. Okay. Mongo only pawn and game of life on this one. But anyway, I mean, if, if you're asking their involvement, um, if we're talking about actual involvement in, in intelligence estimates, the intelligence estimates that were going forward were that, uh, you know, two thirds of the forces going in were Shia militias. What does that say about what's really going on here? Um, it means that IRGCQF has successfully built a gigantic Shia militia apparatus. We, we've seen the militiaization of Iraq's internal security forces, of essentially, you know, the Iraqi um, security establishment. And it goes well beyond that. When you have, you know, the Badr organization running the interior ministry, uh, that certainly points to 
uh, a different direction that the Iraqi state as a whole is taking. Uh, the creation of uh, Hashid al-Shabi, uh, which is the popular mobilization. I mean, it, it's interesting how this term has has latched uh, into media, and a lot of people don't even understand what it means. Um, you know, they're saying, oh, well, you know, this, this popular mobilization militia, well, it's an umbrella group of a multitude primarily of you know, these uh, Iraqi Shia militias, which were, were formed under either the tutelage of the IRGCQF or they were created as little proxy forces of it. But of course, they've pulled in other, you know, non-Homeinist uh, Iraqi Shia who do want to fight ISIS. Um, when you see something like that, then one, you see the Hezbollahization of uh, security apparatus, but beyond that, the militiaization of it. Um so, I mean, this is a huge development. It's a gigantic development. I, I can't say anything less. Um, but the advance into Crete, I mean, what, what is this saying? Um, I mean, it, it says quite a bit for, you know, how effective these forces are and also how it's going to assist with their, their future narratives. For instance, now when this is being cast, I'm already seeing writing on the wall from a lot of their, uh, their trolls online. Uh, where they're saying, well, Tikrit has been a great advance and we did this and we did it all without American air support. Uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, you get kind of this, this odd sort of thing whenever it comes to American support. Either they complain and bitch and moan, and I'm talking about those who are, you know, fully backing these really extremist sectarian militia groups. They will complain and say, America does nothing. They, they haven't helped us at all. Uh, you know, they're not doing any airstrikes, uh, or in the case that I listed uh, before, or they'll do an airstrike and it's a friendly fire incident. They're only doing it to retaliate against our success. So you have that on one end. Or you get the other end where you have something like Amerly, where American air support directly impacted how successful the advance was for the Shia militias to get into Amerly. And then what happens? IRGCQF uh, and their you know, subordinate organizations, these, these subordinate Iraqi uh, Shia militias that they can control, um, they end up ignoring the American support altogether. And, you know, saying that it was nothing. So, I mean, it, it, you kind of run into problems on both ends. Um, but in Tikrit right now, I, I think that this is, uh, you know, demonstrative of, of you know, a, an unfortunate future that's uh, going on within Iraq. And when I say unfortunate, it's not unfortunate that ISIS is, is getting hammered. I mean, I always like saying that. But this is viewed as a highly sectarian push. I mean, if you've noticed in the media... Uh, there have been a lot of people who've been talking about Sunnis that have been joining up with some of these militia groups. And again, that's, that's you know, I, I don't want to say it's all well and good, but I mean, it's, there's a definite narrative that's being promoted, which doesn't necessarily, you know, follow the big picture. The big picture is the majority of the region's Sunnis and a lot of the Sunnis in Iraq are very, very unhappy with the process going forward. When you have Iraqi Shia militias who were a cause, they were a cause for many of these Iraqi Sunnis to even, you know, back up ISIS. Uh, and I'm not saying that ISIS's own, you know, evil deeds didn't get many of them to that position too. But, um, you know, they were a cause for it. It means that that problem will never truly be rectified in the eyes of many Sunnis. Um, and just by promoting a few hundred Sunnis from one tribe that have, you know, like joined a bunch of uh, Shia militias, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is a grand rapprochement or, you know, this is finally the big turn against ISIS. I mean, if that were the case, then we'd see a hell of a lot more 
uh, Sunnis that were, you know, going into this fight. And I, and I, I wish that it was far more diverse in terms of, you know, the Sunni elements that were going after ISIS, because at the end of the day, Baghdad is going to need that. Um, you can't have an exclusive sectarian regime in Baghdad if you're going to have a long-term success against ISIS. You just can't. And uh, anyway, I think uh, Tikrit, you know, represents a lot of these problems going forward. And you know, I, I hope that they eventually get resolved, and I hope that you know, a lot of things get resolved. But unfortunately, I mean, just the direction it's going in uh, doesn't always look look that great. Well, with those final words, I think that's a perfect way to end this discussion. Um, it's been fantastic talking with you, as always. And for our listeners, I highly recommend reading Philip's paper. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, we'll definitely post it because it is just chock full of so much more information. I mean, we could keep on talking about this for probably another two hours because it's just packed with fantastic research. So, Philip, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for uh, for tolerating me going off in a million different directions and not being as granular as I should have been. But yeah, we'll work with it. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> thank you.